Hello! Welcome to Multiverse, a podcast exploring the worlds of fantasy and science fiction literature. I'm Avi Drucker. I'm Selena Yang. And I'm Bob. And today we're discussing the Hunger Games movie, based off of the book of the same name by Suzanne Collins. Joining us today is our special guest and friend of the pod, Bob Venanzi, our guy with a film degree. Hi, this is Bob. I'm thrilled as punch to be here. I uh, I do have a film degree. I've been involved with freelance media for the past 10 years of my life, and I just love movies. So I'm really excited to talk about Hunger Games. We're so happy to have you. Welcome to Film Studies 101, where we discuss the Hunger Games through the lenses of film and other media. From the IMDb, Katniss Everdeen voluntarily takes her young sister's place in The Hunger Games, a televised competition in which two teenagers from each of the 12 districts of Panam are chosen at random to fight to the death. What struck me first was the Cinema Verde style that was very much throughout the whole movie. And that's kind of mocking some of the documentary styles that was done uh, some from the French New Wave when video got very big, but pretty much what it looks like is a camera that's a little shaky. It has nice big telephoto lenses on there. Very quick edits are done as popular with Hollywood. And uh, the blue tint is on there most of the time, kind of showing a cold, futuristic, dystopian world. But it also, the documentary style, kind of brings its own shaky image showing the perspective of your protagonist being a fish out of water when it comes to the games and being thrown in kind of by destiny. She had to like be there, but she does not feel part of this world she's going into. And I thought that did very well. I really think it brought you into the world in a very good way. Has, has anyone ever, uh, has, has anyone seen the uh, 2000 movie Battle Royale? It's a Japanese movie. I haven't. Okay, so Battle Royale is a pretty much a horror movie. It is not meant for all audiences as it this other movie that we are talking about. It is meant for mature audiences because it is very gory. It's horrific. Uh, but it's kind of, you know, sharing a lot of the same things. The plot is there is a dystopian future where teenagers are out of control. The government steps in decides that they'll take a ninth grade class out of a troubled youth center and make them fight each other until there's one that's left standing. I thought it was really cool. So it, it started with, with the fact that all of the participants are high school teenagers uh, around the same age range as in the Hunger Games. They are fighting to the death, and no rules, and, and then like all hell just breaking loose, and they are in a, a designated kind of a constrained area where the environment is controlled by the military and not to mention they uh, even uh, added two participants who are survivors from past battle royale scenarios almost the same like and, and this, this also happened in hunger games 2 which i thought uh was, was was just amazing in the movie there were failed attempts to try to break out of the game without having to kill each other and it is important to note there is a sequel where they try to overthrow the government. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not kidding. That. It's, it's so good. It's, so it, there's, it's fun to see the, as a film guy, I do notice that a lot of filmmakers borrow from Japanese movies, foreign movies, 
and make it a little more palatable, perhaps, to an American audience. Good artists borrow, great artists steal. In Battle Royale, what is the purpose of the fight to the death? Is there a political motive there? I think it was kind of to the the reason they gave was that the teenagers were out of control, so they wanted a way to kind of as a cautionary tale. So they randomly pick a class from a certain high school and just ha- have them fight to death, and it kind of also calls the population a bit. It's kind of similar to the Hunger Games because it's like the districts are out of line, so they're using the Hunger Games to kind of suppress them, right? Yes, but except in this point, there is no different population. It was basically just the Japanese population. It wasn't like the districts versus the capital. Yeah, and it's less sci-fi. It's more horror survival sort of dystopian future is a big similarity, but there's no sci-fi elements like there are. The whole thing isn't broadcast either. The Hunger Games would be entertainment. This was just like an island out in the middle of nowhere. No one has to, like, out of sight, out of mind. But then when the survivors came back, that was put into the media. That's when they knew, like, oh, there's a survivor. Look at the survivor. It had a whole different role. Media is definitely much more a part up front in your face with the Hunger Games, as you'll see, like, people are viewing it. Uh, There's a lot more propaganda tropes that are going in. The reality TV component was new. Yeah, another interesting part about Battle Royale that was um, the sexual connotations. And I think that was also a theme that uh, Avi brought up last time, that there's almost, it's so clean. And that happened a little bit. They, they brought about it very tastefully in Battle Royale. And then there are like other parts where there's a woman killer who's like using sex to kill. That part I thought was uh, interesting. Yeah, for sure. And Battle Royale does that very well. They It's extreme, it's in your face, it's for a mature audience. There are also a lot of Battle Royale-style video games uh, inspired by the movie that are worth mentioning because some of the events in the Hunger Games movie correlate pretty well to things that happen in those video games. In these kinds of games, there is a cornucopia situation where everybody starts kind of in the center, there's a lot of supplies in the center, and a, a significant percentage of people will decide to take the risky decision to grab some supplies and face conflict. That often means that, that a lot of people will lose the game quickly, that there will a lot of, be, a lot of deaths, quote unquote, in the game. Another thing that happens in these video games is that there is a kind of a circle of where the video game participants are, And that circle can become smaller if the game decides that it wants more conflict so that it gets more exciting, that people aren't just on their own at the edges of the map. And if the circle gets smaller, if you're outside of that circle, you will incur damage. So this is kind of similar to what happens in the Hunger Games movie, where Katniss kind of goes almost off the map in the very beginning. She keeps on going away from the center. And eventually the game makers decide to lob her with fire in order to get her closer to the other participants so she incurs damage. Games like Fortnite and Player Unknown Battlegrounds take from these themes and for Battle Royale actually working more like Player Unknown Battleground where that's a mature game, very realistic, and kind of if I may say Hunger Games is much more like Fortnite where it's geared towards teenage audience. 
Just out of curiosity, what happens to, to you if you lose in, in these video games? Are you just disqualified? Do you watch other people fight to the death? What happens? Yeah, you watch other people. Because, I mean, it, it, it'd be kind of lame if you just kind of die and then you have to wait for another game. You just kind of see who the first one who who wins. And I'll tell you, it, I, I played it a lot back when it came out, and I my heart would go racing. May the odds be ever in your favor. Next up is our section on political power in Pena. So this movie has a lot of allusions to different ancient civilizations. We're going to start with allusions to ancient Rome because that's by far the most obvious one. Did you guys notice the Panem flag? It's like almost exactly like the flag of the Roman Empire. I actually provided you with links here. You can you can check them out, but they look exactly the same. Oh yeah, it's definitely definitely borrows from that. Oh wow. Um, there are also a lot of like Roman names in the movie. First off, the capital, the main city in in Panem. It's derived from the Latin word caput. I don't know how to pronounce that, but it means head. As well as some actual characters have Roman names. Seneca is one is the head chief game maker, and he is named after Lucius Adnaeus Seneca the Younger, who was a philosopher and a statesman. There were a couple of Catos in the Roman Empire. There's Cato the Younger and Cato the Elder. It should be Cato the Younger because uh, according to legend, Cato attempted to kill himself by stabbing himself with his own sword, but he failed to do so due to an injured hand. This is very similar to how in the Hunger Games, he fell to his death uh, with a, the Mots because Katniss also injured his hand with her arrow. Another Roman name is cornucopia, which is a Latin word for the Horn of Plenty, which is exactly what it is because it provides the tributes with supplies. Italy was the breadbasket to Rome, and that's like a district. Rome, The Roman Empire had a lot of districts. Of course, there was Africa was part of their districts, uh, up to France even, and Spain, and they would use their minds, their resources... And of course, the heart being Rome, and then that the gladiator similarity, the chariots in the film is just hitting it over the head, but it's it's good. Yeah, there's also a lot of Roman-ish architecture in the capital in the movie. There's like a lot of neoclassical architecture, kind of concrete stone colors. I also believe that this book was inspired by a story from ancient Greece, specifically Theseus and the Minotaur. In Theseus and the Minotaur, King Minos orders that every great year, the seven most courageous youths and seven most beautiful maidens were to board a boat and be sent as tribute to Crete, never to be seen again. And they face the Minotaur, which is a half-man, half-bull monster that lived in the labyrinth. We believe that The Hunger Games is based off of this story. All of this talk of ancient Rome and ancient Greece made me think about how The Hunger Games uses imperialism as a theme, specifically the movie. Specifically, there's a lot of contrast between the districts and the poverty of the districts and the wealth of the capital. And even Effie's British accent, I think, is a sign of this contrast and of how how the movie is casting the ca- the capital as an imperialist force. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Happy Hunger Games. And may the odds be ever in your favor. And that's that's kind of an interesting thing, because when you think about how the book is written, 
in how the movie is made, you have to think of, oh, is this accent necessary? Did the director mean something by putting it there? We call this, the French word is called mise-en-scene, and it means everything in the scene. So when you talk about everything in the scene, there are no mistakes in film. The idea is everything is thought out, and is that British accent put there because the person randomly said, you know what, I don't like your accent, try a British one. Or is it something more, like that British accent was on purpose, we needed that to, to represent imperialism. I think you can make a strong argument that's what the director and the Susan Collins, when she was making her story into a movie, had said. Yeah, the book never says Effie said in a British accent. That, <laughs> that never happens in the book. She just speaks. There's no mention of a British accent. So that was definitely a choice and adaptation. In addition to all the allusions to ancient civilizations, we wanted to talk about allusions to more modern fascist regimes. The propaganda film that we see during the reaping has fascist undertones. What I love about that film is it's kind of an illusion and nod to propaganda in general. And they don't really hearken too much on one particular aspect. You do see the 1950s with the atomic bomb intro, very great Cold War propaganda. Then you do have the man standing up uh, in the leotard, uh, muscular white man, kind of uh, Lenny Riefenstahl who did Triumph of the Will. Her propaganda was so important to filmmakers, they actually still make us watch Triumph of the Will. Uh, We talk about how she was put on trial after World War II, saying her movies helped recruit Nazis. So very powerful stuff. Uh, Then you have like a kid being held up to the sun, like uh, a future, think of the future, your children. It's just kind of one of these interesting little allusions to propaganda in uh, like three different generations, almost. Very interesting. Also, the music in that propaganda movie sounded kind of American. So it was like this weird clash between some fascist undertones and then also like this kind of patriotic music. Next up is District 11, where we discuss race in the Hunger Games. Disclaimer, we're going to be discussing some complicated racial issues. We're not the most knowledgeable people about this, as we have the privilege of not suffering from some of some of the issues that we're going to discuss. So just take what we say with a grain of salt and consult resources from BIPOC people. It was really great going to film school because we really got to tear apart this historically white industry. And there's this trope that we learned in writing class, actually, a lot of these films that try to be all-inclusive, that try to get a wide target audience, often fall into this trope of the angelic Black person. So you do have this in the movie adaptation of Hunger Games, because they chose to cast these people as Black people. You do have them being, they're always saving the protagonist, who's white, and you have them almost being a perfect character. They're actually not killing Jennifer Lawrence like they should because it's the Hunger Games and they should if they could. But you have the the little girl helping her out and you have the older man say, you get a pass this time. He could have killed her. Yeah, that made no sense. Right. Like logically. 
Right. So they fell into that trope. And it's it's not to discredit the movie because the movie is trying to appeal to a wide audience. <laughs> you know, they have this issue on their hands when you represent someone of a different race. Cena also falls into this trap where they are always helping the white protagonist. Problematic? Yes, but it is a trope that we hold on to in order to appease an American audience. And we like to think, at least the writer's rooms like to think that those are white people. Another part of the movie that we wanted to discuss in context of race is uh, District 11 rioting, which we don't actually get in the book, at least this book. I think it happens in the second book, Catching Fire. But the, the movie makers decided to have a scene of District 11 rioting in this movie. And District 11 is predominantly black. And we wanted to discuss the visuals of this and, and the connotations. Yeah, it's very interesting that, like, unlike in the book where there's uh, no mention of race, it's surprising that they uh, decided to cast the entire District 11 as black. And they were also the visual, the first visual district to rebel following the you know, the death of Rue. And then we even get a cast of like her father, who's just very upset. I personally thought that that was kind of like a Hollywood flair to try to stir up drama. A hundred percent. If it doesn't have conflict, I can't sell it. For, For Americans, this kind of thing does resonate with race relations. So you d- it is a very interesting scene. Let me tell you, it's, it's effective in the whole idea of a revolution, right? This whole idea that Jennifer Lawrence happens to be spearheading, of course, but a revolution that is more of a class, a more against the oppressor in a general way. However, it is kind of interesting to see how it was cast. In the book, you don't really have that kind of issue as you do in the movies, so. We know that the two tri- tributes from District 11 are black, but there's no, there's nothing in the book to indicate that most people in District 11 are black, so that was definitely a decision by the people who made the movie. Watch out for gender reveal, our discussion on gender norms. So we noticed that the people in the Capitol are presented as extremely effeminate. They have really, like, colorful outfits, colorful clothing, a lot of makeup. And because they are the oppressors of the film and they're in the eyes of Katniss and and the viewers, bad people, reminded me of of queer coding where you kind of, this happens a lot in in movies and books, but you code villains as queer or as uh, not presenting of 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 traditional gender stereotypes. And I think that's what was going on here. Another interesting thing that happened in the movie, which was not in the books, was the weird flirtation between Cato and Glimmer. They're the tributes from District 1, and they were low-key flirting for most of the movie. Especially Glimmer, she, I think she was cuddling with Cato when they were sleeping. Uh, she, one time he was like sharpening his knife or something, and she was like, boys or something. And she's just very flirtatious, which is kind of her shtick anyway. Selena, you mentioned that this kind of reminds you of like how the Slytherins are presented in Harry Potter. Uh, that reminds me of the the par in the uh, later books of the Harry Potter franchise, where I think Patsy Pattinson, um, Par-uh, one of the Pansy Parkinson. 
sorry, Pansy Parkinson, one of the Slytherin girls, had her uh, head in、uh, Malfoy's lap, and like it's, I think they're kind of played in a kind of more sexually promiscuous kind of undertone. Where that somehow like feeds into how the the connotation that they're evil, I thought it was a bit like a kind of a sex shaming, and I wonder if that also plays a similar theme here in the Hunger Games movie. So the scene is in Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince. Harry is sneaking up on Draco Malfoy. Draco Malfoy has his、uh, head in Pansy Parkinson's lap, and he's all trying to seem really cool that he might be a Death Eater. And she's flirting with him and patting his head while he's talking. Okay. In contrast to how Cato and Glimmer are acting, Katniss and Peeta have zero zero chemistry. But apparently, they have a great love story. <laughs> <laughs> Next up is Reaping Dare discussion of casting in the Hunger Games. Jennifer Lawrence's shot to fame was、uh, with a movie called Winter's Bone when she was still a, an actually a teenager. And it's a very similar vein to、uh, the Hunger Games, where Jennifer Lawrence was also this impoverished little kid who had to take care of her family and her mother, and her father is、uh, missing and presumed dead. I thought that like she looked very similar in there, like her her face like against adversity and just like that youth, but somehow taken over, like innocence taken over by like hardship and 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 adversity, that kind of stuff. I thought that was like a great resume for her when she auditioned for Hunger Games. Oh no doubt, and it's really interesting to see that Jennifer Lawrence's career is. Really springboarded after 2012 with the Hunger Games, but Winter's Bone was a great drama. It's it's got the Appalachian setting, which is very similar to the way they went with in the movie for sure. The first time I saw this movie, I saw it with my dad. I think I was 19. My dad is a Soviet immigrant, and when we started watching it, the first one of the first scenes is Katniss and Gail interacting, and he was like, "These people are supposed to be starving. They don't look like they're starving." <laughs> And that really、uh, resonates with me now. I really feel like the overall setting in the beginning of the movie portrays District Eleven as pretty well、uh, as as, a, as an impoverished place. But Katniss looks extremely healthy and muscular. She does not look like she's starving. She wears really nice clothes in District Eleven. She's wearing like a leather jacket and skin tight pants and leather boots. And Gail looks like a high school football quarterback. And this is a Hollywood, uniquely Hollywood thing, where Liam Hemsworth's character and Jennifer Lawrence's character are both very healthy-looking teenagers. And then you have these shots of these poor, starving children. They they look a little more well cast, but they're not actors; they're just extras. I I thought. You know, I was willing to kind of just believe that they were that did so well with the hunting that they could make those awesome leather pants, and、um, and they they just had so much to eat. Yeah, like I could find it kind of believable. It's, those、um, leather pants look designer. <laughs> like, like it's it's not like you know we've all been watching Hollywood movies growing up. Like that that wouldn't be the first time where where you know you 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 ever thought like oh this person is like running away from gunfights and like haven't eaten for three months or something still looks amazing like face with perfect highlights you know and everything the hair always great like you know like I I got used to watching that so I thought this this was okay right you know? okay. 
Thank you for joining us in our discussion of the Hunger Games movie. If you want to reach out to us, we have a Twitter now. Follow us at pod underscore multiverse. Or email us at podmultiverse at gmail.com. Next episode, we'll be discussing Catching Fire, the second book of the Hunger Games trilogy. Until next time, bye. Bye. Bye.